Welcome to the Hillside Baptist Chapel's weekly podcast. Please listen as Dr. Steve Wood, pastor, teaches from God's Word. Contact information is as follows. Dr. Steve Wood, pastor, phone or message at 6438-6541, email at steverwood002 at gmail.com. Prayer requests can be sent directly to hbcprayerlist2020 at gmail.com. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday morning podcast today for our worship service. We sent out a questionnaire to people and, and asked them whether or not they thought we uh, should have service, if they were going to be able to come to our services and what they thought about us having services, and received several back, all of them saying that they thought we ought to post or uh, dismiss our services for this morning, several saying that they didn't have gas to be able to get here. And uh, so uh, hopefully this crisis will be over by next week and we'll be able to resume our regular services. But this morning, all of our services are coming by podcast. We've already had our Bible study this morning, and uh, this is our worship service for today. And uh, today's worship service is Worshiping God in Vain. You remember last week we talked about true worship and being a true worshiper. So we're looking somewhat at the opposite side of that today. Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman last week in our message, and uh, today we're going to be looking at something different, a prophecy from Isaiah that Jesus applies to those in his day and time. So let us notice, worshiping God in vain, Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to begin in just a moment, verses 6 and 7. And hopefully, we'll see how not to worship God, or that we're not to worship God in vain. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commands of men. This morning, as we begin our service, we have several people that have various needs. Some are in the United States, some are ill, some are traveling. And of course, several of you don't have gas to be able to get here. And uh, so uh, Frank Four is going to come and and, uh, tell us about our prayer concerns this morning and uh, then lead us in prayer, and uh, then we'll continue with our worship service. Thank you, Pastor. I would uh, start off by uh, praying for Sharon. She's, uh, hopefully she's in the United States by now. She just dropped off a few days ago, and hopefully it's going well with her. Uh, she went through Panama, obviously, I, you know, so that, that's good. So just pray for, pray for her traveling mercies, and um, Speaking of that, Dale and Linda will be coming back hopefully within a couple of weeks. They've been gone for months now, so um, they might be delayed because of the, the situation with the travel and traveling in Panama. But 
again, pray for their mercies. We have uh, Celeste and this fa her family. They're in Panama City. They should be right now getting their eucedulus or getting that taken care of. Obviously, again, traveling mercies. We have a lot of people traveling. We have a lot of people that are still sick. Uh, so there's just a lot of people that need our prayers, especially during this time of isolation. So I, uh, I just... Uh, just bring up like Betty Gray. I was, I was praying about her, thinking about her. I you know, don't know what the situation is. I hope these people start reaching out to us on our emails and and uh, reconnect because that's what we need to do. We need to connect. We need to be a strong unity here, especially during this. Uh, during we had the COVID, and now we have the uh, the barcades and the fuel shortages and the food shortages and. It seems like the devil's working overtime, so, but God's in charge, so let's just bring everybody up to prayer uh, and, uh, and just start praying for it. That's what the, the, the church is, the house of prayer, so that's what we need to be. So, and I'll, I'll start by praying. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, O oh Lord. I thank you that we have this podcast, that we can reach out to our, our people, O oh Lord, wherever they're in our homes, O oh Lord. I, I pray for your safety, O oh Father, on all of us, O oh Father. I pray that this situation will end quickly, O oh Father, and I pray there will be no incidences or, of, of danger or, or anything else, O oh Lord. I just pray that it resolves itself. I pray that you can resolve the situation with the Nobis and with the Panamanians and Oh, Lord, just to get things back smoothing again because, oh, Father, you know that uh, we have to rely on you and we have to keep our focus on you, oh, Lord. So I just thank you for, for being in charge and being our Lord, oh, Lord. So I pray for the service today, oh, Father. I pray that uh, people do listen and it goes into their hearts and into their, into their minds. And, uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you'll just give us that grace, oh, Father, to truly love you and truly be yours, O oh Lord. So thank you again, O oh Father. Watch over and care for us. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now as Jesus did his ministry on earth, we know that the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees all were looking to find fault in Jesus. In Mark chapter 7, prior to who we began our reading just a moment ago for our scripture text. In verse 1, the supposed issue here was hand washing. Some of Jesus' disciples had sat down to eat without first washing their hands. Verse 2 tells us. The Bible tells us little about the Pharisees' hand washing ceremony. But we see that pots, cups, and other items were ceremonially cleansed before use. The Pharisees and the scribes then asked Jesus why his disciples didn't follow the ceremonial law of washing their hands before they ate. Last week, as we looked at being a true worshiper from John chapter 4, verses 20 through 26, we were able to see what true worship really is and how Jesus expects us to truly worship Him. That brings us then to Jesus' answer and our lesson for today. Notice Jesus' response 
He didn't deny their charge against his disciples. But he also took the opportunity to point out flaws in their reasoning that Isaiah had prophesied about a little over 750 years earlier. In verse 7, he says, They worship me in vain. What does that mean to us? What is it to worship in vain? Well, I believe it is two different things. There's a vain way to worship God not being a true worshiper. And therefore, there's also an effective way to worship God. The Pharisees and scribes were worshiping God in vain, Jesus is saying, isn't he? But how? We see in the following verses that Jesus was talking about the duplicity of the Pharisees and scribes having so many rules. Their hands, their pots, their cups all had to be washed in a certain way. And he tells them that the outside may have been clean, but the inside was still filthy, or we might say defiled. In his commentary, Spurgeon called these Pharisees and scribes the ancestors of our modern ritualists who are fast bound with idle forms of vain ceremonials and make a great matter of the garments they wear or the color of their clothing. Now we can learn from their negative example that worshiping God is not about outer cleanliness and what we wear as much as it, about, uh, it is about inner closeness to God. Vain worship is outward actions only. True worship is worship from the heart, from the inside out. I have a question for us to consider. Am I worshiping God with ceremonially clean hands and with clean clothing and so forth? Or am I worshiping Him sincerely? When you become a Christian, it doesn't take too long for you to hear about the Beatitudes. I'd like to read from Matthew chapter 5 beginning with verse 11, some of the Beatitudes. He says, You're blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You're the light of the world. A city sitting on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now Jesus uses these beatitudes to introduce what it means to have a meaningful life that is kingdom focused and not worship in vain. We see the pattern. You're blessed when, and then be glad and rejoice. That pattern could perhaps cause our minds to think what Jesus is saying here is for those people. He's talking about others, not me. So just to be sure that we understand what is happening here, Jesus changes the language and makes it much more personal. Verse 11, you are blessed. That just raises the stakes, doesn't it? For all of us, because the language here is not you singular, as in you, you, and you, it's you plural, us, not as individuals, but in fellowship. In fellowship, we are being shown how to be focused as disciples. That's a really distinctive life call, being focused disciples. It's a call that recognizes our identity in Christ and His will to make us stand out. In these verses, Jesus teaches us two ways that we can stand out. First, Distinctive focused disciples are salt. Remember that Jesus is speaking to people in a first century context. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And then secondly, we are called light. In that context, in that day and time, salt was very important. As an example of just how important salt is, let me show you a, a section from a Hebrew document written in the 2nd century B.C. In that document, we read, You are the salt. You are a, uh, he, he was talking about the basis of their lives, the necessity for their culture and the way in which they live. It tells us that salt has a preserving effect. It stopped meat from spoiling as quickly. And then salt was used as a flavoring. It gave food, and it does today, a better taste, right? Salt was readily available in that day and time in Israel. It was abundant at the Dead Sea. One of the saltiest places on earth. As Jesus said, you are the salt, people easily understood the meaning that he was having. As God's people, we're to flavor our society, influence it for good. But there's more than that. We look to the Old Testament of Leviticus, 
Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. He says, you're to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. Now the purpose of the grain offering was to thank the Lord for His mercies and for supplying their needs. The process symbolized the need to dedicate every aspect of our daily lives to the Creator. The ingredients could vary, but salt was always added to preserve, to flavor, maybe, to be an essential ingredient is what the Lord is trying to teach us here. Later, the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians made the same point. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of time. Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. In other words, be focused on leaving a good taste behind you and all the outsiders that you come in contact with. That's the call here. The reason we do so is that we live in a world where many people who are just so stubborn. How many times have you been in a situation, if you're a parent, you certainly have been, there's all the food placed on the table, lovingly set out for the enjoyment of those that are there around the table. And then there's that person. Maybe it's a young person or maybe it's an older person. I don't like that. Have you tasted it before? No, I've never tasted it before, but I don't like that. So you've never tasted it before, but you know you don't like it. No, I don't like it. But why don't you try it? That happens at the table with children, doesn't it? But how many people are like that with God? How many people think that they don't like God? But they are not all knowing God. See, they have never tasted Him. They have never tried Him. You're talking to him or her about their need of salvation. And you bring out the wonders of the Christian life and how it has changed your life. Remember, we've talked about this before. The best witness is our personal witness, how we came to know the Lord and what he's done for us. And you say to them, do you want to... Trust in Him? I don't like it. How do you know you won't like Him if you haven't tried Him? I just know that I won't. As we seek to be salt, Jesus is focusing us on being those who help the earth get a taste of the grace of the Lord. These same people who don't like God can look at our lives and say, I like that moral stand that you're taking. Hold on to it. 
Or, I like the way that your family runs. And I like the way that you deal with others in your relationship and the way that you speak. You see, they're looking at our lives. They're hearing what we're saying. They know how we live. The call that we have is to be distinctive, focused disciples, giving the right message, being salt and being light, as we saw in our text a moment ago, is so important. And in our relationship with others, people are watching us. Matthew 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but the salt should lose its taste. How can it be made salty? And then he says, It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled owned by men. This part of the verse has caused a lot of unnecessary wondering. And people make the point that salt is sta a stable compound and cannot lose its saltiness. That's true for us today. But in the day that Jesus was speaking, salt had other things with it. It had impurities. And it could lose its saltiness. It would lose its strength. Now, <clears throat> 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 says, Now this is the message we have heard from Him, and declare to you God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. You see, we're also light, aren't we? When Jesus spoke to them again, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life in John 8, 12. We can see the idea of what light is. To build the kingdom of God by gathering people from all the nations, when speaking about the beginning ministry that Jesus had, it was initially based in Capernaum. And Matthew says in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, along the sea road, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the shadow land of death, light has dawned. This is quoting Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But Jesus came to give light. And notice here in Matthew, he's saying that he came to give that light, not just to Israel, but to all nations. And the light gives us a focus. We're to be light, which comes from the reflection of the true light. He compared it to be, uh, being a town on a hill. Many towns in Jesus' day were built on hills. They were easier to defend. They were safer to live in. And at night... When a city would light their lights, 
they would light lamps in their houses. And collectively, that light could be seen from a distance. Those who may have still been traveling in the darkness would be able to see the light and know the direction that they needed to go. There was comfort in knowing where to head. Now, unless all the lights are turned off, you can't hide a city, can you? The smallest bit of light can be seen. This is who we are to be, a town on the hill. It isn't an image of one individual, but it's all of us collectively shining all the light. In fellowship together, others can see our light. We're also to be a light on a stand. You see, he talks about putting the lamp under a basket. And that's not what we would do, is it? What good would it be to have a lamp if we covered it up? And so our light is to be seen. Our light is to be set on a stand that others might be able to see it. That's where the church comes in. That's why you need to be a part of a local New Testament church. You see, our lights collectively make a, a huge difference. If we fail to put our light on the stand, as it should be, then there is less light to be seen. You see, individuals have the responsibility of placing their light on that lampstand. Now, think about this for a moment. You can't gaze at the sun, can you? That light is too bright. But you can easily gaze at the moon. And that's the reflective light of the sun. When people are thinking about their spiritual condition and the need for a connection. There will be some who find gazing at God too much. It's overwhelming. It all seems too difficult. There's too many changes to be made, for one thing. There may even be people who find reading the Bible and prayer and meditation too much. But here we are the individuals who know Jesus as our personal Savior, and we're shining. And we're not the light, we're the reflective light of Jesus. The very act of reflecting that light, the light that's much greater than we are, individuals are able to see that light, look upon that light, and they're able to understand what God wants them to do. Notice the Apostle Peter gives us a great example. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He, he says, In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live. 
when they observe your pure, reverent lives, notice as they are seen by their husbands. Here's a common issue in the early churches. A Gentile woman has come to know the Lord, but their husband hasn't. Now, how does she live? She is light. So she doesn't have to say anything. She doesn't have to nag him into heaven. And probably that's not going to work anyway, is it? She just gives the example of what it is to be a follower of Jesus on earth and reflect the light of God. What's the result? Well, the results vary. It may be that that individual will be saved. It may be that that individual will still reject. But when people insult and persecute you, Jesus was saying, He said, Rejoice and be glad that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, which will also cause us to rejoice and be glad. So no matter what happens, we rejoice and are glad. Sandwiched between these two outcomes is the call to distinctive, focused discipleship. Keep being salt. Don't be deluded. Keep being light. That is, don't hide it. Keep encouraging each other in the calling that God has given us, no matter the response that we get. In fellowship together, being focused, distinctive disciples, we're not worshiping in vain. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the time together. Thank you for the blessings that you've given. And we pray that things would be opened up, that we might be able to meet together and worship together again next week. And we pray your blessings on those that are listening. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Contact information is as follows. Dr. Steve Wood, Pastor, phone or message at 6438-6541, email at Wood. 002 at gmail.com. Prayer requests can be sent directly to HBC Prayer List 2020 at gmail.com. Thank you and God bless.